0: This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Good evening everyone and thank you so much for joining us here at the Edinburgh International Book Festival on what is quite a balmy night for Edinburgh, so especially lovely to see you all. My name's Peggy Hughes, and I'm the Programme Director of the Dundee Literary Festival, which happens in October, and I always love being back at the Book Festival, especially when we're here to discuss two such absolutely wonderful books. If you haven't read them yet, there is a chance to buy them afterwards, and I hope you all will join us in doing that. Academy Street by Mary Costello, and The Vegetarian by Han Kang. Um, how the event's going to work, I'll give a very quick intro, um, and then we'll hear readings from both books, then we'll have a blether up here, and then I hope that you... Join in with your questions and comments from the floor. So first of all, Mary Costello uh, has written Academy Street. Before that, The China Factory was her book of short stories, which was um, nominated for the Guardian First Book Award. Um, she's from Galway, but now lives in Dublin. And Academy Street won the Irish Book Awards Book of the Year, among other shortlisted um, you know, prizes, which is fantastic. Han Kang uh, is here to talk about The Vegetarian. Just gonna give a, I'll give a little quote from... from uh, just to give you a little taster brings to mind John Williams' resurrected masterpiece, Stoner, that's Academy Street, and for the vegetarian, uh, it explores the friction between desires that are fed and those that are denied, and is a bracing, visceral, system-shocking addition to the Anglophone reader's diet. Um, Kang, Kang is here from South Korea, and she teaches at the, uh, the Seoul Institute of the Arts. She teaches uh, literature there. So just first of all, join me in again, giving them a really warm welcome to Edinburgh. And I'm really glad we've got EJ here too. She's going to interpret uh, with Miss
2: Kang. Um, so, Mary, you're going to kick us off uh, with a wee reading. I am. Um, um, <clears throat> I was going to stand, but I'll probably I fall. Don't fall. Don't no, I'm sure I'll fall me. on the way over there. No, way. no, it's okay. It's okay, <laughs> it's okay really. Um, I'm going to read um, for a few pages of Academy Street, and I'm going to move into the second part of it. Um, the novel is about a girl called Tess, and it opens in the 1940s in the west of Ireland in a big old house and Tess is seven and her life has suddenly been ruptured by the death of her mother so she's quite a quiet sensitive child. Um, Anyway she grows up she becomes a nurse and she emigrates to uh, New York in the 60s and there she encounters brief calamitous love and she has a son Um, and the rest of the novel unfolds over the next five or six decades. So I'm going to read a little portion where um, she's just setting off. She's an adult now and she's setting off for America. Um, There's nothing that you need to know really apart from the fact that uh, her older sister Claire has gone ahead of her and is there for a few years. Late in the summer of 62, Tess flew on a TWA flight from Shannon Airport to New York. Before she left that morning, her father handed her a 50-pound note and then shook her hand formally, awkwardly. Dennis and Maeve and Evelyn in a hat sat into the car. As they drove away, Tess looked back at the house, her eyes lingering on the upstairs windows, then out at the land. Halfway down the avenue, Dennis stopped the car to get something from the boot. She turned her head to the lone ash tree among the beeches, and saw, for the first time, a band of barbed wire embedded in the trunk, the flesh forced to grow over the spikes in pained little folds and swellings. Dennis sat in and they drove on. How had she missed this before? Who had done it? This was Lohan land, a Lohan tree, so a Lohan hand. At the airport, the summer wind gusted. And blew Evelyn's hat off, and she ran after it, and they all laughed. This will be my memory, she thought, as they parted. They threw holy water on her, and she blessed herself. Dennis looked down, his long arms hanging, and she remembered the injured ash again before the takeoff. She grew frantic. The plane roared down the runway, and she bent her head. It was not flying, she feared, but dying. When the wheels lifted and the plane began to climb, she pressed her fingers to her ears. Then she remembered the date, the 15th of August, the feast of the Assumption of Our Lady into Heaven, and her heart began to quell. God would not let a plane crash on Our Lady's feast day. She began to fill up with trust, like a child newly assured. The roar of the engine eased and the plane levelled, and in a while she opened her eyes. They were in upper earth. They had broken through into the blue. Dazzling light. Glorious. For a moment all thoughts ceased and there was this. A glimpse. A proximity. A feeling of being a fraction of a second away from something pure and sublime. A hair's breadth from the divine. And then it was gone. The clarity. The fleeting elation. And she looked up and saw the other passengers sitting there, reading, sleeping, or in quiet contemplation. Claire's husband, Peter, a tall, handsome Irish-American, was waiting at Idlewild Airport. Shyly, she climbed into his car, and he whisked her up to Peekskill on the Hudson, where they had taken a summer house. Everything was different. The highway, the sky, the distant forests, the vast country green and clean and perfect. The trucks thundering past with huge chrome wheels and invisible drivers high up in cabs. For a while, she forgot where she was. The trees are juniper, Peter said. His teeth were white and gleaming. Juniper, she said to herself. Beautiful word, beautiful trees. They stopped at a turnpike and paid a toll, just to use the road. There, on the front lawn of a low-slung villa above the river, stood Claire, a small child at her feet, another one inside her. Unable to utter a word, they embraced. When they drew away, there were tears in each other's eyes. Their aunt Molly was there, up from the city to welcome Tess, a large, buoyant woman with a shock of white, frizzy hair. They moved to the backyard. Later, Peter's extended family came by, And he lit the barbecue and poured drinks and everyone milled around the pool. Outside, on the street, big American cars floated by. In the hours and days that followed, Tess would sometimes look around at the kids and the cars and the pool, at the picture windows and the sun-drenched world she had tumbled into. Once or twice she remembered home, Evelyn's hat and the injured ash, and then forgot them. In the evening, the crickets sang. Peter came up behind Clare, stroked her back, gazed tenderly at her swollen belly. This is what he has done to her, Tess thought, this act of love, of sex, on her sister. In a book, once she had come on the words, Fruit of my loins. She remembered the nights she had climbed into Clare's bed and slept in her arms. They looked at each other now, in the look was an acknowledgement, a declaration, an affirmation that everything was finally settled, and the lives being lived here were the right ones, the ideal lives. Slowly in the months that followed, Tess tuned to the frequency of the city, to the accents and the street grid and the subway, to the black faces on the sidewalk, the sirens at night, the five and ten cent stores teeming with goods. And buildings that rose up daily from gaps in the streets. The new words too, pocketbook, meatloaf, lima beans, jello, the taste of coffee, the clothes so lovely and cheap and slim fitting, the abundance of everything. In September she started work at the Presbyterian Medical Hospital on East Sixty Eighth Street, and in the early weeks walked the long corridors every day, shadowing her seniors pushing medicine carts, taking blood, listening, learning, delivering all that was expected of her. Unconsciously, she adjusted her accent to be understood and altered her handwriting until it attained the grace and slant of American script. She sat by herself in the cafeteria. The pall of loneliness that accompanied her from her aunt's apartment each morning and which was briefly eclipsed by her duties lowered itself again. At night, in the apartment, she studied for her nursing accreditation, or sat in the living room with Molly and Molly's other boarder, a German man in his 60s named Fritz, with the fan wearing and I Love Lucy, or the Jack Parr show on TV. Fritz was a machinist in a factory downtown. In the apartment, he fetched and fixed things, and on Fridays carried home the shopping from the Safeway store on 183rd Street. On Saturday nights, he and Molly sat in the living room, drinking. He, small shots. She, high balls of whiskey. On weekday evenings, all three of them sat at the table and ate pot roast or gammon steak. Afterwards, Fritz and Tess washed up, and then Fritz tuned the radio to a jazz station for the night. One night, as he turned the dial, she caught a snatch of a song she recognized, and in its beat, briefly forgot herself until she became aware of Fritz's eyes on her. The next evening, he came in and handed her a box. This is for you, he said in his sad accent. Inside was a new transistor radio. The kettle on the stove began to sing. She saw the jets of flame underneath, their fragile blue beauty, and when she looked up at Fritz, she was overcome by a memory of home and Mike Connolly. One day in the city, she felt the stir of anxiety on the streets, and day by day it entered her. On the TV, missiles, warheads, ships steaming towards Cuba, the end of the world. She thought of home, her father, Evelyn in a house full of kids, danger floating close. One day, she saw a rich woman emerge from a building, usher children into a taxi, everywhere an exodus, people holding their breaths, looking at one another, as if we are all brothers and sisters, Tess thought. One night, the president addressed the nation. She was mesmerized by his beauty, his pain, as if the words themselves afflicted him. And then the ships turned back. We were all brought together in fear and mutual need, she wrote to her father, and now its passing has brought something else, hope. Love, down on the streets. She had found a new language. This country had given her new ways to think and speak. A week later, she went up to the Bronx and bought five dresses in a dress store, one lovelier than the other, because she could. She took the subway back down to 181st Street and walked out into the autumn sun and floated along the sidewalk, catching herself for a moment in that concentrated life. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Could you do the same? Mm. The Vegetarian is a novel uh, about a woman who <laughs> refuses to eat meat anymore to reject human brutality out of herself and then Believe that she is turning into a plant and doesn't eat anything else but water, and getting closer to closer and closer to death. And um, this novel is uh, composed of uh, three parts, and these are narrated by different characters. But Young this woman, doesn't speak. And I'm going to read uh, three parts, just one page each. And I'd like to read uh, the first paragraph of the third chapter uh, to just let you feel the sound of Korean. 그녀는 비에 젖은 도로를 바라보며 서 있다. 마서급 터미널 건너편의 버스 정류장이다. 거대한 화물차들이 굉음을 내며 1차선을 질주해 지나간다. 빛바른 그녀의 우산을 뚫고 들어올 듯 거세다. The first chapter is narrated by her husband. Before my wife turned vegetarian, I'd always thought of her as completely unremarkable in every way. To be frank, the first time I met her, I wasn't even attracted to her. Middling height, bobbed hair neither long nor short, zundiced, sickly-looking skin, somewhat prominent cheekbones. Her timid, sallow aspect told me all I needed to know. As she came up to the table where I was waiting, I couldn't help but notice her shoes, the plainest black shoes imaginable. And that walk of hers neither fast nor slow, striding nor mincing. However, if there wasn't any special attraction, nor did any particular drawbacks present themselves and therefore there was no reason for the two of us not to get married. The passive personality of this woman, in whom I could detect neither freshness nor charm, or anything especially refined, suited me down to the ground. There was no need to affect intellectual leanings in order to win her over or to worry that she might be comparing me to the preening men who pose in fashion catalogs and she didn't get worked up if I happened to be late for one of our meetings. The points that started appearing in my mid-twenties, my skinny legs and forearms that steadfastly refused to bulk up in spite of my best efforts, the inferiority complex I used to have about the size of my penis, I could rest assured that I wouldn't have to fret about such things on her account. I've always inclined towards the middle course in life. At school, I chose to boast around those who were two or three years my junior and with whom I could act a ringleader rather than take my chances with those my own age. And later, I chose which college to apply to based on my chances of obtaining a scholarship large enough for my needs. Ultimately, I settled for a job where I would be provided with a decent monthly salary in return for diligently carrying out my allotted tasks. At a company whose small size meant they would value my unremarkable skills. And so, it was only natural that I would marry the most run-of-the-mill woman in the world. As for women who were pretty, intelligent, strikingly sensual, the daughters of rich families, they would only ever have served to disrupt my carefully ordered existence. (laughs) And the... the part is narrated by her brother-in-law, her sister's brother. She, uh, he is a video artist and uh, 그녀의 uh, 몸에 꽃을 그리고 그것을 uh, 화면에 담아서 uh, 예술 작품을 만들려고 하고 있어요.
3: Uh, he's a video artist. He, try, he draws picture on her body, and then he takes picture. Then he try to make art project from that.
0: She put on her jeans and his jumper, and wrapped her hands around the mug, from which the steam was rising. She left her slippers by the door, stepping lightly across the floor in her bare feet. It wasn't cold? He asked for the second time, and she shook her head. And it wasn't difficult? All I did was lie there, and the floor was warm. The whole situation was undeniably bizarre, yet she displayed an almost total lack of curiosity, and indeed it seemed that this was what enabled her to maintain her composure no matter what she was faced with. She made no move to investigate the unfamiliar space and showed none of the emotions that one might expect. It seemed enough for her to just deal with whatever it was that came her way, calmly and without fuss. Or perhaps it was simply that things were happening inside her, terrible things, which no one else could even guess at, and thus it was impossible for her to engage with everyday life at the same time. If so, she would naturally have no energy left, not just for curiosity or interest, but indeed for any meaningful response to all the humdrum minutiae that went on on the surface. What suggested to him that this might be the case was that, on occasion, her eyes would seem to reflect a kind of violence that could not simply be dismissed as passivity or idiocy or indifference, and which she would appear to be struggling to suppress. Just then, she was starting, no, sorry, just then, she was staring down at her feet. Her hands wrapped around the mug, shoulders hunched like a baby chick trying to get warm. And yet, she didn't look at all pitiful sitting there. Instead, it made her appear uncommonly hard and self-contained, so much so that anyone watching would feel uneasy and want to look away. And the final part is narrated by her sister, Inye, and this starts with the paragraph I read you, uh, read for you in Korean. She stands and looks out at the rain-swept road. She is at the bus stop across from Masok Terminal. Huge goods fans thunder passed, speeding along in the fast lane. The raindrops drum against her umbrella, so forcefully it seems they might rip through the material. She isn't really young anymore, and it would be difficult to call her a beauty exactly. The curve of her neck is quite attractive, and the look in her eyes is open and friendly. She wears light, natural-looking makeup, and her white blouse is neat and creased. Thanks to the smart impression, which one might reasonably expect to attract curiosity, attention is deflected away from the faint shadows clouding her face. Her eyes glimmer briefly. The bus she has been waiting for has appeared in the distance. She steps down into the road she watches as the bus, which had been tearing along, uh, along at a great pace, slows down. You are going to Chukseong Psychiatric Hospital, right? The bus driver, in late middle age, nods to her and motions her up. She pays the fare, and as she scans the bus for somewhere to sit, her eyes pass over the faces of the other passengers. They are all watching her closely. Is she a patient or is she a nurse? There doesn't seem to be anything odd about her. Well used to this, she keeps her eyes averted from those probing gazes, that mix of suspicion, caution, repugnance and curiosity. She shakes the water off her folded umbrella The floor of the bus is already wet, black, and glistening. It wasn't the kind of rain for which an umbrella could provide sufficient shelter, and so her blouse and trousers are half-soaked. The bus picks up speed, racing along the wet road. She struggles to keep her balance as she walks down the aisle, finding a double seat Where both spaces are unoccupied, she takes the one next to the window. The windows have steamed up, so she gets a tissue out of her back and wipes a patch clear. She watches the streaks of rain lashing the window with the untouched steadiness unique to those accustomed to solitude. As they reach Masok, the late June was begin to unfurl on either side of the road. There is something batten down about the woods in this torrential rain, like a huge animal suppressing a roar. As it turns up the road to Chuk- Chukseung mountain, the road gradually narrows and becomes winding, bringing the wet body of the woods undulating nearer. The base of that mountain over there Might those be the woods where, three months ago, her sister Young had been found? One by one, the black spaces between the trees, concealed by the shaking canopy of rain-lashed leaves, pass in front of her eyes, she turns away from the window. Thank you.
1: Thank you, both. Um, I wanted to kick things off um, with asking about the thing that unites these books. I think, especially, is the very burning inner world of both characters versus the quite quiet seeming outer world. Mary, could you say something about what drew you to those to Tess to begin with, and to that specifically that kind of story? Um,
2: Yes, I. Tess is uh, as. Young High is in, in Hang's book. She's, a, I suppose you might call her a chronic introvert or a severe introvert. Uh, she's an intuitive as well. So it, all it means really is she gets her energy from within. Um, so living in the world always presents a certain degree of problem. She's always trying to mediate the inner and the outer. And she's always looking for some more meaning in the external world, trying to touch another layer that will give her substance. Um, and I think that in general, we live in very extroverted societies, you know, everything is measured by how one speaks, expresses themselves, how one succeeds, um, whether that's, you know, artistically or materially, and so the inner world is not much valued because it's very hard to put a value on it, you know, so, um, and Tess herself doesn't much value it at times because this is the environment she's grown up on, grown up in. Um, so I think there is, um, I was drawn to that kind of character I suppose because um, uh, in general most people have an inner life that's invisible and um, doesn't always get recognized and I had the character of Tess you know the seeds of the novel was in the short story that I in my first book Um, and she was this quiet uh, sensitive child but I don't think any more sensitive than children in general I think all children are hyper alert to the I suppose, the hidden potential of reality. You know, I think in all children, the window between perception and the imagination is, or the door between perception and the imagination is slightly ajar. Maybe in some it stays ajar for longer, depending on conditions. But in general, children are very aware of, you know, I I, I don't know if I've said in the novel, but Tess can almost hear the grass growing or the pebbles laughing, you know. So she's in tune with the mystery of the physical world. And as an adult, she's caught in that conflict still. You know, she's functioning, she's a nurse, she's paying her rent, rearing her son, so she's fun- fully functioning. But there's always moments when she's trying to touch some higher note, trying to put her finger on something else that will give more meaning. Um, you know.
1: And Kang, could you say something about that with your book, the inner world versus the, the mm-hmm. outer world?
0: Uh, Younghae, 이 소설에서 유일하게 말을 하지 않는 인물인데요. 잠시 그녀의 꿈만, 악몽만이 이제, 어, 이 소설 속에서 유일하게 말하는 부분으로 등장을 하게 됩니다. 그런데 이 영예는 보기에는 굉장히 조용한 삶을 살고 있지만 사실은 안쪽의 세계는 아주 복잡하고 강렬하고 그리고 어떤 인간의 폭력성과 인간의 존엄에 대해서 고민하는 인물입니다. 그리고 그것을 자신의 삶으로서 보여주고 증명하려고 합니다.
3: 영의 uh, the protagonist is the only character that doesn't say anything throughout these so three linked novellas, and Only her dreams and bad dreams, recurring bad dreams, only explains her point of view throughout the novel. However, uh, uh, besides her calm exterior and uh, silent exterior, inside she's very passionate and very complicated and very strong. And she is always worried about the humanity and the, the... what is being a human and uh, their value if you like so she's always worried about this issue basic issue and with this uh, her agonizing problem she tried to show you through her life how to solve this problem or how to narrate this problem
0: and 그러니까 어이 uh, 어떤 이런 고기를 더 이상 먹지 않고 그리고 식물이 되어가고 있다고 믿는 이런 믿음과 그것을 자신의 몸으로 실현하려는 이런 시도 자체가 어, 밖으로 드러나지 않지만 가장 강렬한 그이 사람의 어떤 말이라고 할수 있겠습니다.
3: So Young's most um, poignant or strongest remark or saying to the readers is. Um, throughout not eating the meat and become a vegan. And also she wants to be uh, she wants to metamorphosis, being a tree eventually. And her this desire is really, she is trying to solve a problem to make her realize herself to become a vet- vegetable or trees rather than animal world. And uh, this is a very strong and powerful agenda. We can see, throughout the novel.
1: Can could you mm-hmm. say more about your choice to, to take on vegetarianism? Um, why why sh- why it's ve- that's a, is that a taboo in, in South Korea? And why you chose to make Yonghye uh, mm-hmm. want to become vegetarian?
0: Well, I I wrote a short story several mm-hmm. years ago and the title is The Fruit of My Woman. And there is a woman who literally turns into a plant when her husband came back from his business trip and then he puts her in the pot and waters and and takes good care of her. And (laughs) And after I finished this short story, I felt I have something to write more, and I wanted to rewrite rework on that uh plant woman and and then I wanted to uh deal with my basic and fundamental question questions about hum- being human and so it's like that what is what are human humans and they are. The creatures that who who can (coughs) sacrifice themselves to save a fallen child onto the subway track, and they are the beings that who can do horrible things in Auschwitz, you know. And uh, since when I was a very little child, I it was agonizing questions about being human that I'm belonging to the humans. And then uh, I imagined the woman who wants to become a plant to reject human brutality. And I wanted to uh, deal with these questions through this woman's choice to become an innocent being in this world, even if it's impossible and paradoxically, even if she's destroying, destructing, herself and it was yeah it was my yeah it was my motivation yeah Mary could could you say
1: something about the questions that you're that drive Academy Street that that drove you to write it
2: um, a character first you know it was the story really um, <clears throat> um i do get asked about the social context of the novel because in it's set in the 40s in rural ireland so there was you know there wasn't a lot of money even though tess grows up in a, a big house it's not that the family don't have a lot of money and uh and ireland in the 40s wasn't a very pleasant place you know there were no jobs and there was very little income um but tess you know tess has a child out of wedlock in in the 60s and of course. In Ireland, that would have been taboo in many places too, but particularly in Ireland, right up to the 80s, in in fact. So Tess would never have been able to keep her child if she'd had the child in in Ireland. It would have been, you know, given up for adoption. um, But I never... I didn't have any agendas, you know. I didn't have any um, prescriptive or or any themes for myself. I I just wanted to tell the the story of Tess and... uh, um, the The story has a family resonance in the in the sense that my my own mother grew up in a big old house in 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 we, in east Galway and just like Easterfield in the novel i no, i modeled Easterfield on that big old house um my her family weren't wealthy or anything but the house had been built way back in the seventeenth century and it had a lot of history um but my mother's mother died when she in nineteen forty two when my mother was three um and when I was young, I was very close to my own mother, very I still am, but in a very um in the way some children uh, you know, it's almost like being in love with your mother. It's it's a very close bond. And uh sometimes at a very early stage I became aware that she had lost her mother when she was young. Um and I would look at her and think, You had no mother. And it was very hard to imagine being without a mother. So uh later then when I became an adult, you know, I realized. or it struck me, the, you know, the catastrophic effects the death of a parent can have on a family and how the trajectory of that whole family can suddenly change. Um, My mother's older sisters were in boarding school at the time their mother died and they were taken out to mind the little ones and they didn't return. Um, And I think they would probably have been destined for university. My mother didn't go to university. And I often wondered about, you know, the effects and the long-term knock-on effects that has on, you know, future generations even... Um, so that, that was the initial impulse and then of course you know everybody grows up enthralled to America at least I did anyway you know music, film and everything and you know going to America I had a, aunts and uncles who went to America in the 60s my mother didn't but one of my aunts Carmel was a nurse in Manhattan and uh, she came back after four years but she nursed very much like Tess and she lived in a flat on Academy Street which is a street in Inwood in the northern end of Manhattan so they were sort of that was the driving force. It wasn't so much social themes.
1: I'm just going to stop you. Is, is there a lovely front of house person in here? Could you nip out and see if they can? That's really distracting, isn't it? The shouting and so on. Could you maybe just nip out and see if they can not be shouting? Brilliant. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, so I wanted to ask Mary, because it, of course it's, it's set a lot in New York. Did mm. you need that distance, do you think, to, to explore the, the Irishness, you know, the, the Irish things in the book, the, the, the
2: sexual repression possibly? Did that help? being uh, saying it somewhere else Um, of course I didn't give any forethought to any of that you know I just wrote the story as it you know I I sort of knew the the outline of Tess's life but I didn't um, I didn't give any thought to um, exploring immigration for instance I never I never saw it as an an immigrant an immigrant's novel but of course it is in many ways um, but I think because my, of my own love affair with New York, um, I was drawn to it. You know, I, I've never lived there, but I've been many times, and just the throb and thrum of it. You know, just I, ca- I can never sleep even. You know, um, and also I, in, in 2011, I did a house swap. I swapped my house in Kimmage in Dublin for a flat in the Upper East. Well, you know, York Avenue and 19th Street. And Tess, the story of Tess was forming in my mind around that time. So I used to take the A train up to Inwood, 207th Street. That's how far up it is, the last stop on the A train. Um, And I walked around those streets uh, where my aunt had lived and my uncle and another aunt as well. And um, it was very, you know, that generation of Irish people who immigrated, you know, I see it in photographs and stories of their lives. They were very... Innocent and uh, you know, full of dreams, and you know, they weren't part of the American counterculture of the 60s. You know, they were some of them were pioneers. They didn't drink. They went to mass every Sunday. They were quite innocent and chaste in many ways. And when I, you know, when I think about them, I, I, I'm, I'm quite moved by the stories because their innocence and earnestness and the complete lack of cynicism. And of course, a lot of their dreams came undone. But when I was walking around those streets, I really. I felt, I don't know, something of their lives, the echoes of their footsteps almost in the streets. And I, you know, I went to the church and the school and in Woodhill Park where my aunt would have gone to and the library. And um, there was one day I sat across from the school, Church of the Good Shepherd. I put it in the novel that's The Real Places. And um, it was it was about half two and parents were gathering to the front door uh, And it's quite a Hispanic area. In the 60s, it was a bit of an Irish enclave, but it's quite Hispanic now. And parents were gathering. And upstairs in the classrooms, the lights were on. And I could just see the tops of little heads and hands going up and down. And it was one of those moments when, you know, Tess's something of the novel was constellated in that moment. And I knew Tess would see that, you know. Mm
1: -hmm. Can I I wonder, because The Vegetarian was, I believe, published as three... Separate stories in, in Korea. Could you tell? Could you speak about that and how seeing it, you know, obviously translated into English as well? How that's different? How that makes it maybe a different thing from the original thing you, as it was in South Korea. Ah, uh,
0: 한국에서는 음, 문학 잡지가 아주 많아요. 그래서 어, 작가들이 단편 소설이나 중편 소설, 노벨라, 많이 이제 발표를 합니다 그래서 저는 처음부터 이 소설을 하나의 장편 소설로 쓰려고 계획을 하고 있었고요 그래서 저 혼자 이제 잡지에 연재를 한 거죠 그러니까 첫 번째 폴스 챕터는 이제 어떤 잡지에 두 번째 챕터는 두 번째 잡지 이렇게 해서 연재를 해서 그렇게 해서 하나의 장편으로 묶었고요 어, 출판됐을 때는 거의 바뀌지 않고 거의 그대로 번역이 되었습니다 거의 하나도 안 바뀌었다고 할수 있어요
3: in Korea, in general, the literary world is, it has so many um, periodic journals and literary journals, so um, I, all the authors, uh, when they enter the literary world, they normally publish either short stories or novellas or a full novel. And for me, to write these three linked uh, novellas, from the beginning, I knew I wanted to write a full novel. But I tried in three different uh, journals to publish my novellas each different way. And then later on, when it was published as a full novel, nothing I can say, confidently, nothing has changed. And it was all like original, I planned.
1: I'm just going to ask one more question. I'm mindful that I want you to have an opportunity to to ask your question. So I'm just going to ask it. It's inspired by uh, something you said in an interview, Mary, which is about... um, the short story, uh, that short story writers uh, are mere pawns for outsiders, conduits for lost souls, which I loved. I love that idea. Um, I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit, about being drawn um, to both characters, Tess and and Young hae are both troubled and and, you know lots of turmoil there. Could you say what it's like, what draws you to that kind of character?
2: Um, It must be a long time ago since I said that. I love that quote. But um, I think that the short story in particular is particularly suited for isolated characters. It was Frank O'Connor famously said he called, you know, the short story the lonely voice because it's for you know, it, it it conveys that sense of isolation. Um and I think the thing about the short story as well, it's a very opaque form in a way. It's there's always something lurking underneath. It's not transparent and it's uh something must be gleaned, nothing is Pointed out exactly for the reader. In fact, um, Joy Williams, the American writer, says that short stories are devious. They pretend to be about ordinary people and ordinary things, but that's just a masquerade. And there's always something lurking under the surface. And that sort of ambiguity is, you know, between the inner and the outer uh, darkness and light. You know, it's it's more interesting to explore, I suppose. Um, um, Nobody wants. Somebody emoting all over the page. You know, we like exacting language and something occasionally to be arresting. And in in general, I don't I don't necessarily want to read stories full of tricks either. You know what I mean? I I do like a story, but you know, some of the people that have influenced me most like Alice Munro, James Salter. Um, the the language is very exacting and yet also arresting. Um, so yeah, the, the, I think the lonely voice. You know. <laughs> Suits an outsider.
1: When you said emoting all over the page, I had a sense of a book made up entirely of emoji, somehow, <laughs> which could be in our in our future. Who knows? Um, mm. yeah. Could you could you answer the same question, Kang, about them um, about mm-hmm. and uh, the story versus the novel, and what draws you to exploring that kind of character?
0: Mm. 왜
3: 영예 같은 성격 주인을 만들어서 그 성격을 갖다가 탄과를 했는지.
0: 음, 어 저는 어, 단편 장편 소설을 쓰기 전에 어, 단편 소설로 먼저 데뷔를 했어요. 그래서 지금 제 메리 코스텔로그 씨가 얘기한 그 호수에 대한 비유가 아주 좋다고 생각합니다. 그리고 저는 언젠가 어떤 글에서 어, 단편 소설은 성냥깨비로 um, I debuted uh, with uh,
3: short stories and I always think that um, the what uh, mary said about the short stories it's like uh something conjuring up from the little lake. like i like the expression as well and uh, my i uh, my personal opinion of the short story is almost like you strike a match and then you just uh, watch the fire and then eventually it's extinguished so that's what i think of a short
0: story
1: yeah. okay i think we'll get the house lights up and take some questions and comments please that would be brilliant Anyone want to kick us off? Can't see any. No one? No. We can keep blethering, but it would be lovely to hear from you. We've got one here and we've got is that one there as well? Um,
0: hi. Um my question's to Han. Um, I myself lived as a vegan vegetarian in South Korea. So I'm asking Han what she thinks about how Koreans view vegetarianism now and has it changed from the way people perceived it back when the book was originally written? Is
3: the author a vegetarian?
0: Uh, I was a vegetarian. Uh, just it was uh, in late 90s, and it was very hard to live as a vegetarian in Korea or in over the world. Maybe in those days, they didn't like meeting vegetarians. Maybe they. They didn't invite vegetarians home to dinner. Maybe. 어, 그런데 제가 이 책을 어, 발표한 게 한국에서 발표한 게 2007년인데요. 그때에는 이제 vegetarian들이 조금 있었어요. 그래서 좀더 관심을 가졌고요. 지금은 이제 채식주의자가 아주 많아졌습니다. 그래서 아마 지금 다시 한국을 방문하신다면 훨씬 더 많은. 어,
3: when I wrote this book in two thousand seven, um, there weren't uh, many vegetarians at the time. But it was there were more vegetarians than obviously before because in two thousand seven they started getting lots of more vegetables and vegetarians, and the people are aware of their needs. And uh, so, if you um, visit. Now, back to Korea. I'm sure you'll have more options to eat, mm. and have a more comfortable life.
1: And Mary, you're vegetarian. I mean, being
2: vegetarian in Ireland in the back in the day wouldn't have been the easiest either. I would say. No, ironically, um, when I actually when Hang's novel came out earlier in the year, I remember thinking, I want to get that book um, because I'm vegetarian too. But um, no, it wasn't. I'm vegetarian for about 20 years, but it's much easier, you know. Um, it's much easier than it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. great.
0: Uh, we have one here, Brilliant. I just wondered what both of you are writing now. Mm. Yeah. Uh, recently, most recently, I have published a novel uh, about the massacre of Gwangju in 1980. And it has the same root with uh, the vegetarian because it was the the, the tragic uh, incident which sparked me of these uh, fundamental questions of being humans and how can we endure this world or how can we embrace this world? And it was published in last year and it is going to be published in January. It's coming very soon in UK, and it's called Human Acts. Mm. Yeah.
2: I'm very envious. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had a novel ready to go. I don't, um, but I'm working on one art. I, uh, I'm, I have another one to write, but I'm, I'm also writing short stories. Uh, my first book was a short story collection, so short stories are always pressing up or... You know, there. Um, there was a time when I thought there's no re- need to write a novel at all. Everything can be written as a short story. In fact, the, uh, Academy Street started out as a short story. I was telling this friend of mine one day about this idea I had about this woman Tess, and I was telling him about for a story because I hadn't written a novel, and he just looked at me and said, "That's a novel." So um, I don't know. Maybe the next novel will end up as a story, but um, yes, I have a novel in the in the works.
1: Not going to say more than that. No more. No more
2: spoilers. I'm afraid. <laughs>
1: How does that work? If your head's in the novel, do the stories run
2: alongside in the background, or is it? Um- no, usually there's a bit of space between them. I cannot work on two things simultaneously. So either I'm immersed in the novel, or I'm with the short stories, or sometimes maybe essays as well. But I keep notebooks. So even when there's stories that are pressing up, I will keep a notebook. I'm, you know, I'm like a bookie. I open a book on something. You know, so I will open a book on a short story or you know a new idea. Uh, whereas with the novel, the one I'm planning to write, or you know, I have notebooks already. You know um James Salter again said he he always he called it his ammunition, you know he had to have loads lots of writers have notebooks it's it's very very it's probably the most popular way, but he said he could never start unless he had loads of ammo you know and i I feel the same i feel i'll procrastinate i'll put everything off until I have lots of material, and I'll be forced to start then okay Kang would you agree do you need to be working on one thing um, or can you multitask
0: um, Actually, I 가장 먼저 시로 어, 데뷔를 했고, 그 다음에 숄트 스토리를 썼고요, 그 다음에 이제 장편소설을 썼는데요. 저는 지금까지 그냥 이세 개를 다 같이 하고 있어요. 그래서 물론 장편소설이 가장 중요한 이제 저의 질문들을 앞으로 밀고 나가는 그런 어, 과정을 형성하게 되고요. 그 사이사이에 이제 저는 동시에 쓰는 건못 하고요. 사이사이에 장편
3: I started writing um, poems first and so I normally um, have poems and short stories and the full novels as well but my underlining fundamental questions as a novelist will be always within the issue in the my full novels but um I cannot really simultaneously work on three different genres, but I do work consecutively or in between. While I'm writing full novel, I would um, touch on my uh, poems or short stories. Yes, so.
1: we've one here at the back. Great. Hi, this is a question for Mary. There's a particularly beautiful sentence in Academy Street uh, where you describe Tess as floating close to Hazard. And I wondered if you could talk about what that meant for you. Um,
2: yes. Uh, um, I think, and it's, it's something I've thought about for my characters in my short story collection as well. There is a sense that... Um, the, the themes that interest me really are love, death, and fate. F.A.T. Um, and I, the characters themselves feel this sense of another. Well, they, they're slightly aware of the hidden realities around us. What Rilke called the open. And um, Robert Musil, early Austrian, early 20th century Austrian writing, writer, also had he had a character in. Um, this big novel, I have never read it all but I've read parts of it, uh, The Man Without Qualities and Ulrich was a possibilitarian so he believed in the possibilities of all realities and uh, Tess doesn't ever, Tess doesn't articulate that but she has this sense of hidden forces around her um, and the sense that at any moment it can all end, that we're really only a breath away from the end and the miracle is that we survive it all at times you know, and mm. um, There's, uh, you know, in in Ted Hughes's poetry, in a lot, I am interested in that sense of uh, what lies hidden um, just outside our consciousness in a way. Um, And there's a lot, you know, there's... um, I, I know very little about science, but there's an astrophysicist, Brian... Green, who's written this book called Hidden Realities, and he explores all that, how we don't know, you know, we don't know that there may may be many other realities, and uh, it would be very arrogant of us to think that there isn't, or to assume that there isn't. Animals alone have access to more faculties than we do, so why would we think that we have the supreme um, knowledge of, of these things? So there is a little bit of Tess who feels... And and it comes from her childhood. She is hyper-alert to the hidden world as a child, and she hasn't changed as an adult to some extent. Of course, her sensibilities and her faculties have been um, dulled, maybe, or blunted somewhat by life, which, you know, a child's perception is very, very brilliant, if you think, and what has happened to us along the way. We we do dull, I'm, I'm sure, but there's something, there's some vestiges of that still in Tess, and that's why she has this sense of floating close to hazard, I think fab. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Um, both of these books
1: I'm just going to wave them so you know what you're looking for in the bookshop. Um, they're both absolutely wonderful, packed with wonderful sentences and I hope that you will come and come and speak to the authors there. It just remains for me to say, please join me in thanking them very much for being here with us in Edinburgh.